how do you change the system to take longer term decisions without forcing people and using a government to do that, right? And the answer is you set up cooperatives and mutuals. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, I speak with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I connected with Shiv Malik. Shiv is a technologist, broadcaster, author, and former investigative journalist for The Guardian. He co-founded the Intergenerational Foundation think tank, and is also author of several books, including The Messenger and Jilted Generation. He joined the Web3 space in 2017 with Gollum and then Streamer, and in 2021 he co-founded Pool Data and leads the organization on its mission to bring data unions to the world and ensure people have control of their data and a genuine stake in the digital economy. In this conversation, we talked about what is Web3 and how it's different or better to what went before. We also talked about what data unions are and why they're important as cooperatives in the digital landscape. And lastly, we touched upon his background as an investigative journalist and how that's informed what he's doing now. So I started out by asking him, how would he define Web3 and in what way that differs from what went before? Enjoy. Web1 is this notion that the internet was a place where people could connect to other individuals, peer-to-peer if you want, seamlessly, without kind of all these centralized parties kind of getting in the way. Um, But it would also be a place where everything was sort of free because, you know, it's easy, it's like zero marginal cost, right, to replicate digital products. Um, So we could talk, we could chat, we could communicate, we could share, and all of this could be done free and openly. And wouldn't it be wonderful? It'd just be a kind of technologist's utopia, if you want. Then Web2 came along, right? Uh, it's the people with the, the, who thought, well, we've got, how do we monetize this, right? So in, in a sense, you know, sort of Facebook starts as this kind of Web1 platform and suddenly rapidly turns into, um, because the investors are there, this kind of very the epitome of a Web2 behemoth, right? Which is, ah, we're the centralized platform running this. You as the individual have very little power and say over how this platform is operated. In fact, you are now, uh, as the user being used, right? You're going to be monetized. Your eyeballs and your attention uh, are going to be monetized. We're going to try and get as much money out of you as for advertising, but we're also going to be a central repository for huge troves of data about you, which is obviously how we serve the ads, right? And that's the kind of the general model. And, you know, the original sin of the internet, as sort of these Web1 founders put it, was was advertising. They really think about all of this, right? Uh, And how it would encroach and become the dominant model. So that's Web1 and Web2. So what's Web3? Web3 is let's try and return to those fundamental values of Web1. But we've got new tools to do it, right? There's fundamental values of Web1 being that kind of, you know, I, I am free and a sovereign individual. I can form my own communities. And, uh, and centralized parties don't need to be in the middle sucking all the value out of this. So what are the new tools? The new tools are kind of money, right? We've got digital money. And that is, that's a really big deal. It's not a small thing. You know, once 
the Bitcoin had come out and the idea of a distributed ledger had been popularized, uh, which is kind of roughly where we are now, you can start to do all sorts of um, fascinating and interesting things. Uh, you can also start to form communities around identity. So, you know, when you're asked to sign in with Google, sign in with Facebook, mm-hmm. you know that Facebook and Google are, are watching, therefore, everything you do. Well, first of all, they know that you signed in to a third-party website, right? They also know what you're pretty much doing on that website as well, right? So it's sucking up more data. Now, imagine if you could sign in with a protocol that, in this case, with Ethereum, right? It's a, it's a kind of, uh, it's a blockchain protocol, but you basically have your own sovereign identity, right? It's the identity that belongs to you. Right? And you could imagine that signing in with that and it, you know, you've also kept all your data with there. Uh, you're also allowed and enabled to make payments with that. Uh, and of course, this then hooks up to the metaverse where you know, if you have, let's say, an object in a game, right? like a, a sword, right? and you want to be able to port that from game to game, or you've got your CV, um, how do you move that from one place to another without it always being dependent upon the platform? So this is the, this is the, the vision of Web3, right? It's pretty expansive. Uh, but it has the values of Web1, but the tools, new tools to be able to actually deploy that. I'm fascinated you sort of talk in the language of the sovereign individual, which is a concept of sovereignty, at least in, in, in these aisles have been a hot topic of conversation. But um, so you've been working most recently around building data unions, right? So I just wonder if you could go on to tell us what they are and how they relate to this kind of wider context of Web3 that you've just laid out. Well, yeah. And well, maybe I'll just answer that question very briefly about the sovereign individual, if you said. So lots of people in Web3 believe in sovereign individuals in that kind of very almost neoliberal sort of sense, um, you know, Ayn Rand, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of people in the Web3 community who don't believe in that, right? Who realize, look, we are individuals, sure, but we're also communities. And how do you give life and breath to communities? So the um, and and how do you and you know the tagline for Ethereum, which is the, one of the great splits, is you know people who are Bitcoiners versus people who support Ethereum, all right, and a huge ecosystem of, of builders on that side of things, is that difference is just that difference between I'm a sovereign individual, I should be free to do whatever I want, right, and and Ethereum who says we're building tools for human coordination, right, that's the kind of the tagline for Ethereum. So how do you get humans to be able to coordinate with each other better? without government uh, or sort of these big single entities stepping in the way. Um, and that's a worthy, very worthy enterprise. And, um, you know, we all feel that in our everyday lives. I think, you know, you're like, well, look, here, here's what I want to happen in my community, literally where I live, like with the roads, with infrastructure, with spending, with police, right? And, and there seems to be just so much division as of late over those priorities. And if only you could com- coordinate better at a ground level, wouldn't life be a bit better? And it, and it would. The, the Bitcoin versus Ethereum uh, kind of view of the world, I'm sure it's too simple to say that's kind of left versus right kind of politics. Or, or is there something in that more around the individual versus the community? It's about hyper-liberalism or libertarianism versus communitarianism. I don't know if that's left or right. Where do you stand on that, on that divide then? I'm totally communitarian. And, uh, and I believe in co-ops. I believe in mutuals. I think they are the future. And you believe in unions, which is also a hot topic in the UK this week. But yeah, uh, so tell, tell us about sort of data unions and why they're important. Yeah, so a data union is very obvious in a sense, expression of that communitarianism, right? You've got an asset that's continually generated, right? Every time we interact online, we're creating data. Individually, it's not worth much. 
In fact, it's almost worth nothing, right? It's also incredibly complicated to do anything with uh, from an individual perspective, right? Because it's messy, it's all over the place, it's scattered. Like, what do you do, right? So you need something to be able to, one, gather your own data footprint, right? But two, collectivize it or aggregate it with others, join together with other people to turn it and leverage it into an asset. That's what everyone else wants, right? And by everyone else, I mean the sort of um, the huge companies are out there um, trying to serve you ads, uh, understand who you are. It's not just marketing, but it's also service provision, right? If you want insurance, well, they have to know who you are, right? To try and give you the best deal. Um, and if you want any of this to operate, right? At the moment, how it operates is that, uh, you know, you're just there doing your thing and other people are basically spying on you. Uh, and those people who get who spy on you are getting who have been like really well rewarded, right? Those people include obviously, in a sense, Google and Facebook, but also other bit part players that you probably don't know about, right? Like the the apps on your phone, right? You might have downloaded a weather app, it turns out, and you just want to know the weather, but it's also now garnering all your details and probably can figure out when you're about to, you know. Um, purchase a house. You're like, how do they know that? Well, you sort of in buried in the terms and conditions was we're also going to collect everything you do on the internet, basically, in short. So privacy movement has tried to try to clamp down on that. But actually, you know, we do want to share our digital stories with people. There is use in that, but only if we, and this comes back to that intersection between individuals and communities, we as individuals are happy to do that, right? We have to consent to it. We have to want it, actively want it. If you do, then join this thing called the data union, right? Other people will take care of this work for you on the technical side and the financial side. They'll monetize it in a way that respects your wishes. They'll share it with people and entities that you probably do want it shared with, for example, like charities, right? Who spend, you know, a billion pounds, I think is the figure in the UK on advertising. It's not very effective, right? Um, and... Uh, and and they'll worry about, you know, it's like having an agent, right? We have agents in our lives all the time, right? Lawyers are agents. The law is really complicated. You wouldn't try and do it yourself, right? Or accounts. Accounting is really boring, right? And complicated. You wouldn't want to do it yourself. So you employ agents all the time. A data union, in that sense, acts for you in that way. Uh, and unions are an agent, of course, as well, themselves. Um, yeah, exactly. Can you give some an example or two of uh, data unions that... Um, that are out there in the world now, do it playing this role. You know, so we're in, in June, if you're on the tube in London, um, you might spot uh, advertising for a company called We Are Eight. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Right, um, so who are they? Well, they're a data union, basically, uh, who also kind of serve your kind of Instagram-ish um, social media platform, uh, supported by, you know, Rio Ferdinand, the footballer. You know, they want to do things differently, but they're effectively a data union, right? They will pay you for watching ads, but they're also kind of monetizing your data. So that's the beginnings of something there. Um, and there are more explicit data unions, which say uh, like uh, generate, right? It's another kind of, um, if you know, people who are avid watchers of Dragon's Den will know that not so long ago, about a year and a bit ago, the, their CEO gave a, um, a stonking presentation, uh, which, and, and right. Uh, and they all wanted to come in on it. And what was it? It was a browser plugin that, that monetized your data. It's a data union. So, so basically the, the generate take your browser history and, and sells it to the highest bidder or yeah, how practically does that work? Yeah, well, it's not to the highest bidder because it's, you can sell it to multiple parties. They all want access to it. Right. 
Um, so, but yes, that's the idea is that they sell it to, you know, well-regulated third party companies, um, who want to know what, what, what are people up to? Who are these people coming to our website? Right. Who are these people out there doing X, Y, and Z? Uh, they just don't know. We're, we're still in that, you know, it's a funny world. The reason why people have to spy on you is because they don't, when you turn up at a website, they don't know whether you're a bot or a human or a dog, right? There's that old classic New Yorker cartoon. No one on the internet knows you're a dog. Well, that's problematic. <laughs> the world is complicated and, and people are, you know, time poor and, and lazy. And I'm talking mainly about myself, but also about other people. Um, you know, none of us have got time to figure some of this stuff out. And the incentives to exploit, you know, a, a, a user's attention is, is very high as, you know, Facebook and Google and others have very successfully exploited. How do we avoid that imbalance in power? Yeah, you're right. So I think the first level of data unions is to say, look, spend a couple of minutes and you'll earn some money, right? From from your data that you already generate, right? So that's clickstream data. Maybe you've got, um, actually, I was just coming from a demo where we were, uh, you know, uh, Fitbit. Um, well, there's a the French version of that's kind of withings. Uh, or, and um, so you can connect to a data union with your health data, right? Your wellness data heart rate, steps. Turns out I'm on the lower league uh, of this data union. <laughs> um, uh, you can connect your banking data as well. We've got data unions that allow you to do that. So the first step is going to share, spend a bit of time, a couple of minutes, and earn revenue from that, right? From stuff that other people are already earning money off, but not you. I think the second stage is where it gets really interesting, right? And that probably is a bit more appealing to people like you and me, who are like, well, they could get 10 bucks, 20 bucks a month. Right. Um, and again, we're living in really hard times where that can make all the difference for people. Um, but but then the next level is, OK, this is going to make your life super convenient. Right. Not only are you going to be able to, um, when you turn up at a website, get rid of all those GDPR like cookie preferences. Right. Because it will start to know who you are and already therefore know your preferences. Right. No, uh, it'll also do things like autofill. Uh, because you'll be able to share your data with data unions and then copy and paste it back into your own sort of personal data vault, right? And uh, uh, so it'll be able to, you know, autofill. But also then you'll be able to see ads that are actually genuinely tailored for you and not junk. And also tell websites, look, I only want like five ads a day, right? Suddenly, when you take this really central asset back uh, into the hands of ordinary people through these entities, you get to sit at the table of how things are then worked out, right? I don't know if you know Scott Galloway, the podcaster and sort of uh, commentator, tech commentator, yeah. talks about, you know, privacy being a luxury of the rich. So, you know, Apple users pay $1,000 or pounds for an iPhone and get their privacy protected. Uh, and, you know, the rest of the world is on Android and gets fed ads. You know, how do we stop this somewhat utopian vision of the future that you're painting just being a preserve of, you know, those people that frankly can afford to protect and manage their data in the way that you described? Well, first of all, I think this is consensual. So you don't, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like, don't get involved. And that's fine. That's great. That's how it should be. You know, the privacy Puritans, as I sometimes call them, kind of got human beings wrong. We don't want to sit in a dark room and, and be entirely anonymous in the world. That's not how human beings are. I mean, look, we're talking to each other, right? We're sharing information about uh, each other. And then random other people I've never met before are going to listen to this. Um, we share information about it. We tell stories all the time. The question, the problem with that has always been, did I say yes to that? Is that okay? Right? Did I ask permission? 
And that's where the digital economy's kind of gone wrong because they're not asking permission and they're making massive amounts of money from it. So it feels like we're being used, which is again, why we're called users, right? Not members. If you're a member of a data union, right? And you get, members get, users get used, members get served. And, um, and that's just flipping that script is really important. And hopefully look, we've got this kind of model right because that's the bit, you're right, Roland, that's the kind of the bit that I'm worried about, right? Which is that, is this just a bit too tricky to do for ordinary people? Is it tricky to download a browser plugin? Mm, maybe. Is it tricky to download a mobile app? Well, no, probably almost certainly not. Like I think probably everyone listening to this has absolutely done that several times. Is it tricky to click buttons? No. Is it tricky to get kind of receipt of payment? Is that incentive enough to do all of this in the first place? Yes, for a certain group of people, but not for everyone. And I still think that when we get to the point where it's convenience that we're offering, that's when this this wins out. And people go, great. When I go for an insurance, to, I just upgraded, renewed my insurance for the car. It's like loads of forms you have to fill out, right? Loads of things. It's like, oh, it's such a pain. I know who I am. I know this information. I'm sure they know. Couldn't I just like auto fill it out, right? Couldn't I just press literally connect? right at that moment and then it knows it just knows right and there's no reason why you can also not connect your car right in about five years from now everything the cars are just basically giant computers on wheels at this point great connect your car right and then and then it's all done right and then your you know your garage right or whatever like can also connect to this and they'll ping you when your car's like starting to break down like that that's the world that i want and i want it to be really super easy i want my digital story in one place so i can port that anywhere I want, and then I say yes to it or not. So I totally agree with you downloading an app, clicking a few buttons, or, you know, everyone below a certain age probably can do that without too much hassle. But it's kind of the cognitive shift that is harder, you know, to this this different business model and why it's in people's benefit above and beyond, you know, getting paid for your bank transaction data or whatever it might be. And that's the, that's the harder shift for people to make. But But I know this is Maybe part of the reason why you're talking to me today. What, what, what is pool data and how are you helping data unions to come into the world? So about a year ago, I co-founded um, this, uh, this organization called Pool Data. And the idea is that we help these data unions to scale. So I've been doing this for about four years now. I've seen all the problems that data unions have had to get off the ground. Um, and they're considerable. It's not easy to do any of this stuff. Um, I mean, I think we've hit the right moment in time for them to turn people's minds. And when Rio Ferdinand's kind of jumping on this. Yeah, I'm sure it's not purely altruistic. Yeah, it might not be purely altruistic indeed. Um, then, you know, again, maybe it's got legs, right? Um, but we help them with the infrastructure they need to get off the ground, right? So they all have to build, they all want to monetize the data, right? How do they do that? Oh my God, they now have to like, create relationships with every single major buyer out there. Well, wouldn't it be better if there was just a single portal, like a, a marketplace to do that with? So that's what we do. We provide that marketplace. We provide the kind of the boring sort of payment rails and messaging networks uh, for them to kind of be able to scale really quickly. And then we're going to do something really exciting, um, which is consumer facing, which is this app that I was sort of talking about. Uh, it's called Pocket. You can join data unions from there, right? So it's one place. So how do you find if you're like, interested in all this how do you find other data unions right you don't want to be sitting there going from one to another and who are these organizations are they good are they scammy can they be trusted will they actually pay me um so we'll list the best ones in there you can join you can get paid all in one place that's cool 
but then you can also store all the data that you're sharing with all the Didians in this data vault. And that's what you use the single pocket to sign in. And we're using, going back to the Web3 thing, we, the protocol we're using is, is sign in with Ethereum, which uh, if you do have a wallet, you'll probably have signed in with Ethereum somewhere at some point. And you realize, oh, wow, this is great, right? It's not owned by Facebook. It's not owned by Google. It's owned by me. I own this. So what are your success measures? How will you know that you've done the job that you set out to do when you founded this company a year ago? Yeah, great. What's my KPI? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the kind of the midterm, we obviously want to onboard data unions to a marketplace, right? Quite simple. We've got the buyers out there. We've got some great partners, uh, enterprise partners. And, and why are they interested in what we're doing is because, you know, when they buy data, they're often buying from places that they're really unsure about, right? Where did you get this great data from? Well, we can't tell you. That's how sort of most conversations start, right? Um, and why can't they say? Because they got it from spying on people. That's basically it, right? No one's actively consented this stuff. And the EU is, has also jumped on that as well and gone, you know, we're going to, the new set of rules that have now uh, been in, uh, enacted the end vision is really we want you know tens of millions of people having joined data unions, having their own data in their own data wallet, and then being able to like leverage that convenience, right? Uh, being able to, for example, make micropayments to read um, to read articles. You know, so many like every time I, I hit a paywall, I'm like, I just want to read this one article. I'm happy to pay you like four pence to read it. I don't want to subscribe for a year because <laughs> like, I wanted to read three articles a year from you, right? It's a bad deal. Um, so, you know, make micropayments, traverse the web, right? As that, if you want respected, dignified individual and, uh, and just have all of that convenience. So we want, that's a scale we want to get to. Is there a sort of dream data source that could be the, the, the killer app or the, the, the holy grail of, of Web3 and data unions? Yeah, no, I think the, the killer app of Web3 will be the data wallet. So it's not just for holding your coins or your crypto. It also holds your data. Uh, going back to the EU, they, they just made our job, they made our job so much easier because in a year and a half's time, everyone in Europe, 450 million people, excluding Britain, but everyone in Europe will be able to, at the touch of a button, port their data from Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, just like they do with open banking. And people may have used open banking at some point to go, fine, I'm happy for a third-party app to like give me financial advice based on what's coming out of my bank account, right? They may have used that. Well, where are they going to port their data to? And the place we want them to port it to is first and foremost, a data union. So we're already starting to build data unions that can exploit that. Right. So how much will it take to unbundle Google's data? Right. How, how many data unions can you get out of that? Seven, 17. Um, you know, then there's Facebook, which is, you know, that's going to be really complicated. Um, imagine joining a LinkedIn data union. Right. Where now you've got your portable CV. Right. Uh, it's great. You know, all these things are, are just right on the edge. So now imagine you've joined several data unions and now you've got a data vault full of this kind of persistent long store of information about you, which you control. So if someone says, can I read this? You can go yes or no, right? And only by saying yes or no, 
will it be activated? So no one else can read it unless you say yes. But it's got your all your, Google, your information from Google, all your information because you've joined a Google data union effectively, all your clickstream data, all your wellness data, all your vehicular data because you joined a mobility data union, right? You can imagine this. Uh, not It's not very far off. I, I can imagine it, but doesn't, uh, sorry, just on a very practical level, I'm, I'm sure this is wrong, but I just imagine loads of pop-up alerts saying, do you want to give your data to this organization? And just like we all accept the terms and conditions without reading them, do you think, uh, yeah, how will how, how can you get people to make a conscious choice rather than you know, just getting overwhelmed uh, with the choices that data unions are offering? Great question. So that's where pool uh, also comes in, right? And this is also where data unions come in. So you've got agents working for you to make sure you don't have to think about it because no one wants to think about it. It's too complicated for any one individual to like navigate that world, right? So when the pop-up comes, uh, it will say, we trust this person to behave responsibility. We're, we're effectively checking them, right? And, uh, and we do audits of them. Uh, and everyone will want to be on that trusted, like, you know, imagine a traffic light system, you know, green light. Right. Um, and we've got we hold the power. This is, this is the thing about, you know, suddenly you've got a union working for you. OK, well, what have they got to leverage? And the answer is all the information about millions of people. Right. Which they collectively control uh, and individually control, in effect. And if you want to be part of this, you've got to behave responsibly. Right. So, you know, we can get to the point where you're like, you know, and you should be able to, so when you turn up at a website for the first time, then, you know, Google ads will say, are you happy for us to read your data? And you go, yes or no. If you never want ads from Google and then, or just random ads, then fine. But if you do and you want to get paid for it or your data you need to get paid for it, then you click yes. Then you won't have to do it constantly. But if Google keeps serving like terrible ads, right? fraudulent stuff or whatever, we can sit at the table with them and go, if you don't sort this out, we're throwing you off our green light system. And that's that's the real power that comes from that, right? Google have a lot more lawyers and money than than any regulator in the world. Almost always the regulation lags the, the current state of the arts. I don't know, how, how can we align that, those imbalances somehow? Or do, you, or do you think that the regulators are catching up now in some of these spaces? If you own that wallet, you can't steal the money from there. You have to assent to it. Now, you might get scammed out of it. it unless you say yes, then that's it. It's totally secure, right? Secured by cryptography. So the same thing is the same thing with a data vault, right? And a data wallet. No one would be able to read it. Um, so it doesn't matter how many lawyers Google have got, right? If you say no to Google, it's yours, hmm. right? I mean, unless we overturn property rights. <laughs> At this point in the economic cycle, uh, I'm, everything is up in the air, but yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> ironically, they have to go communist. Uh, look, yeah, no, you know, then, then if you say no, then they won't. See, we, the thing is, is that, Individuals, when they do take under join data unions and actually bundle their data together, right? It, they'll be more powerful than Google. They have an asset that's way more powerful than what Google can currently offer. Google doesn't have um, your mobility data, right? It doesn't have stuff that's persistent. It can't actually monetize it directly as raw data, and it can't actually. It doesn't share individuals' profiles, right? Like that. Ah, so does Pool sort of coach users saying if you connect your bank data with your mobility data, then you know that that will increase your the value. Well, if you just join more data unions, you'll have be able to store more data, and you'll be a more interesting character when you show up, and people will pay more to serve you at. And if you don't want to be part of that system, you're completely honest, then that's fine. Absolutely, drop out, hmm. get spied on anyway, perhaps. 
Um, but but really, if you really want to drop out of the world in a privacy way, you get rid of your smartphone because everything on there, ultimately, most of the stuff on there will be spying on you. Yeah, yeah. So you can't you can't opt out without you can't be that privacy puritan unless and I know people like this right and they do they don't have smartphones right they don't have computers and they and if they do they use them in very specialized highly technical ways that evade any spying almost no one lives like that so it's it's an impossible dream so you might as well control how we share and what we share rather than trying to evade data sharing altogether right because that doesn't benefit you and it only benefits a one-way game right so how does the current sort of crash in cryptocurrencies and the whole market uh, uh, shifting a lot in the last few weeks um, make your life easier or harder in the, in the medium to long term? Uh, it's made it harder for sure if you're trying to raise money. And, you know, the ecosystem as a whole is all, like all these entrepreneur data unions also trying to raise funds. Yeah. So it's definitely made it harder. I mean, that's just sort of, but it's also good because it's also washed out a lot of the the leverage and the scams. And, you know, I, I've, this is my second cycle now, <laughs> like a veteran of this stuff. I went through the first one and watched from very early, like late 2016, basically. Again, sort of ridiculous parties being thrown, uh, lavish amounts of money being wasted. Evidently, people jumping on bandwagons that were already full of other people with Ponzi schemes. And I thought, God, good riddance, right? And they did, and they all left because they'd made you know, you know, their half a million and left. And we've seen it again. Uh, and I forewarned about it in pieces that I've written. And it was, you know, it's just been more sophisticated this time. Is it just an inevitable stage in the process of any new technology? Or is there something unique to this world that is particularly prone to boom and bust? No, it's unique only because it's unregulated. And I think if you're going to create DeFi protocols, you yeah. can either do one of two things. Either you actually create a DeFi protocol, so a decentralized finance yeah. um, platform, or you don't, right? And it's centralized, in which case you should be regulated, yeah. right? Now, the one, this is the thing, right? The platforms that have survived this crash, they're the ones that are actually uh, truly decentralized, right? Yeah. Like Uniswap, if you're used to that, or Aave. They have to build for whatever happens, right? Which means they need to be sustainable because humans can't get involved. And if you can't, humans can't get involved, they can't do things like shut the service down, wow. right? Uh, in which case, great, you have to make this totally robust um, or XDAI as a stable coin, right? But they don't, they also don't have marketing budgets, right? And they don't, they don't do this thing, which is, look, you're going to be super wealthy and make loads of money, it's great. And basically activate people's greeds because they don't have marketing budgets because mm. they're just a platform, right? It's just a piece of software that runs, in a sense, autonomously once it's set up mm. um, with with minor improvements on that. So, you know, the ones that have crashed have been the ones that have used... It's the same thing going back to the Wall Street crash. Mm. Uh, or if you've ever read David Graeber's book uh, on debt, A 5,000-Year History, it's got everything there. It's got everything there you'd ever need to know to navigate the world of craziness. We're destined to repeat the yeah our, our history if we if we don't read it. But so yeah, maybe we can go there because I'm. You said earlier you made a comment about sort of data buyers wanting to know what what the source of this data is um, and not always getting a very clear answer. But you're you're an ex investigative journalist, aren't you? And, and a good journalist never reveals their sources. Uh, at least that's the kind of old adage. So. So I'd love it. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got to doing what you do now from from that kind of background, and maybe tell us a little bit about 
yeah, how and why you've got interested in this space? Yeah, it's uh, I've had a bit of a peripatetic career, if you want. But, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 15, I, what, what do you want to do? And I'd say, I want to be an investigative journalist for The Guardian. And I got there. Uh, it was amazing. What was it at 15 that sort of excited you about that world? I, I, I do a bit... <laughs> Being a member of the press pack, which is like this news round. Yeah, you mean, oh God, yeah, I do remember that. Um, yeah, Dexter Fletcher. Yeah, that's right. So it's like this kids show. Um, it's a kids news program run by the BBC, and they had like join the club and be part of the press pack, right? Be a budding young journalist, like aged eight, right? I never actually got a story published on there, but you know, hey, I think it always appealed to me to be able to have the license to ask any question. Yeah. Right. About the contemporary world in which you live um, and find out. And the difference between that and reporting is that you're trying to reveal information which someone, usually the center of the story, obviously, doesn't want you to know. And so it makes it even more of a challenge. Right. Reporting, you can usually, you know, something happens on the street. You just say, this is what's happened. It's not that anyone doesn't necessarily want you to know or it's an election or whatever. Right. But with investigative reporting, that's always the case. That's the differentiator. So it makes it a real challenge, right? How can you outwit someone else uh, as well as then report on what's important or interesting? So I originally got into it with um, with terrorism uh, and, um, you know, sort of post-2001, I was kind of graduating from uni. And um, so this stuff was all around. And, and July the 7th, 7-7 in the UK was a huge formative event for me, 56 people killed 52 victims and, and four suicide bombers on the London transport network. So again, that was, you know, that took up many, many years of, of being, I became a specialist in that. Mm. Uh, I was also interested in economics. Um, so I wrote a book in 2010 called Jilted Generation about intergenerational economics. And basically the thesis was the one that we're living still now, which is that the younger generation, the millennials, my generation, if you want, we're going to be poorer than their parents. And that's now confirmed in by all sorts of people. Well, that's I one of the drivers, is it not, of kind of Web3 and kind of speculation in cryptocurrencies, just because there, there isn't kind of wealth available to younger generations to some degree. Um, so it's kind of creating alternative economics. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, it's borne out by some research that we did about two, about three years ago that I commissioned um, to say, look, who are these sort of token holders? Why are they in, in investing, if you want, into projects? What, what's their goal? And it isn't to buy a Lamborghini. Right. It's actually to have a family and a home and raise children and put some money aside for a pension. And you're like, God, yeah, this is so sad. These people are doing wild, crazy things, if you want. Right. Um, and, and really believing it because but they're ultimately just really conservative. Right. And what they want, small C conservative. They just want to do what their parents have done, but they don't know how to do it. Right. Because just having a job isn't good enough. Right. Anymore. So, but how is your thesis of intergenerational unfairness that you wrote about in 2010, was it? Jilted Generation? You know, yeah. we're now 12 years beyond that point. That, that unfairness has increased uh, exponentially. Uh, how has your thesis evolved? I mean, so that gave me an insight into kind of economics at, at writ large and how mm. things could, in a sense, be you know, where the world was at the moment and where it was going, which is that, you know, how do you make these things? Then the question is, how do you make these things affordable? What's the solution, right? To, to if you want to flip it another way, which is societal time preferences off, right? We spent a long time from the 80s onwards um, 
giving one generation a lot of tax breaks, selling off communal assets to them. Um, what do they do with the money? They kind of had holidays, they put it into property, so they beca- could become landlords and rent and then not work themselves, right? And not every gener- person in that generation by any means did that uh, at all. But, you know, again, you know, if you give everyone a little bit of a tax break at some point because North Sea oil comes in, Norway decided when it's North Sea oil that it was going to put all of it in a fund. Britain decided to give everyone a tax break. So what does Britain have now? Nothing. What does Norway have? The largest uh, state sovereign wealth fund in the world. So we take these long-term decisions make a big difference. So how does that relate back to what I'm doing now? And the answer was, how do you change the system to take longer-term decisions without forcing people and using a government to do that, right? And the answer is you set up cooperatives and mutuals. It's the longest... It's the, one of the oldest um, bodies that we have. In fact, the, the Cooperative Act predates the Corporation Act in the kind of mid-Victorian era by four years. Hmm. Um, and uh, so we had cooperatives around for well over 150 years at this point. Uh, and yeah, they, they predate modern corporations, right? So these people set them up with the idea that you could both own and operate and be a stakeholder in the enterprise that you're involved in. So you do you, you labor and ownership and capital are one and the same. Much more sensible model than where we are. Right, right. Currently we in Britain we've got rail strikes, right? Well, it's because labor and capital are different, right? So they're opposed to each other. So you end up with this constant opposition and constant fighting over the kind of the pie. When a cooperative is far more cooperative, right? It's just like it's in the name. Um, and imagine if you did that with housing, right? Um, it wasn't all just private, right? So you have these vehicles called community land trusts. Uh, and imagine if you did this with tech, what would that look like? Well, data unions. Is this a new economic model, a new kind of political model that sort of sits alongside those old models of capital and labor? Or, or is this, you know, ultimately your vision is to replace to replace that? So here's the connector point. I was writing a book called The Mutual Future uh, when someone said, oh, you should look at what uh, is happening in 2016. This is late 2016 after I left The Guardian. Uh, you should look at what's happening with uh, Ethereum. Um, and then I just fell down that rabbit hole and never came out again to finish that book. <laughs> Um, but that, that is, yes, Roland, if there's a conspiracy here, this is the secret plan, uh, that you could get, uh, a lot more proportion of the economy, uh, of the Western world to be mutuals and cooperatives. Uh, these are old models, but you just need to reinvenerate them again, uh, and, and reinvent them for, for, for the 21st century. Um, uh, but they, you know, there are mutuals and cooperatives all around you, wherever you are, you'll find one. Um, usually they're quite quiet, again, kind of small C conservatives, they work. Um, people don't like to invite you into a club that has got extra benefits to it. Um, that's the only problem with them. For example, there's a place called Bourneville in Birmingham, and it's a, it's a really lovely place to live. And uh, and the reason is, is because it's community land trust, right? Basically, short version. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of a housing cooperative where but it basically says, look, we'll give you housing at a discount, but you have to, you'll own it the house, but when you sell it back, you also sell it at that same discount back to the trust and then they, they pass the benefit on, right? Right. So it's like council housing, except it's not the state who owns it. It's this local trust, right? Who are very rooted in the community and making this thing work because they live there too, right? They don't want to screw things up. 
um, because it affects them. So you have these things, they're all around, right? But there's a long waiting list to get on onto that stuff because people go, oh, it's beautiful, it's lovely, it's brilliant, and it's cheap, right? Isn't that what housing should be, for example, right? Or John Lewis, right? Huge, huge, um, and very successful, mutual. Everyone wants to work for them, why? Because they've got great benefits. Rather, the way that we get this future that you're portraying, let's not call it a conspiracy. Let's call it let's call it a, an ambition <laughs> for a, a utopia, or maybe not a utopia, but um, by voting with our crypto wallets or our, our pocket apps, uh, rather than putting a cross in a box every four years. Listen, I, I, I love what you're doing. I think it's very exciting. I don't profess to understand it all, but uh, sort of inspired by your energy. Um, maybe maybe I'll just finish with like, what's the best question I haven't asked you yet? Well, maybe it would be sort of this, which is, look, why... I should have, I guess, sort of said this at the top, right? This is the, this is the future I want. It's kind of a mutual cooperative future. Yeah. Um, you know, why do this thing with data unions? And the answer is, is because actually, if you don't control the singular most important asset of the digital future, which is the information we produce every day, then there is no mutual future when it comes to technology. And if there's no mutual future for technology, it won't exist for anything else in the end. Um, when, you know, AI becomes the new piece of capital, if ordinary people don't have a say in how that operates uh, and don't have leverage and control on that basis, then again, I just, you know, it's another f- point where you really fear for the future of humanity and, and, and for ordinary working, working people, right? So that's why. That's why data unions are really important. If you, we all have to have that leverage, uh, that stake in the future and, uh, and, 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 and be able to leverage that. Thank you, Shiv. I learned a lot from that conversation. And I really liked what he said at the end about the fact that we all need to have a stake in the future and be able to leverage that. And the question about how do you change the system to take longer term decisions without forcing people or using governments to do that for us. And the fact that data unions are the way to do that. So to find out more about Shiv and Pool and some of the things we talked about, please check out the links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. Thank you to all of our community members, clients, partners, and patrons. To find out more about us, please check out www.weareliminal.co. Lastly, please can I ask that you like and subscribe to this podcast or share it with others who you think might enjoy it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, You never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.